Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from Farnham U3A History Group. The final meeting of the year for the Farnham U3A World History Group comprises of four short talks from any period in history. The fourth of our short talks is about Athelstan, Britain's forgotten king, and is given by David Simpson. So I'm going to talk about an Anglo-Saxon king, so going back quite a long way. We've obviously dealt with music and Chinese art. I'm heading back to probably a bit more traditional history at the moment. So I'm going to talk about Athelstan, whose data 894 to 939 CE. Athelstan is a forgotten king, lost in the impenetrable mystery of the Dark Ages. Yet in the 12th century, he was revered as the greatest English king in history. His court was the byword for glamour, glory, and gold. And even as late as the Elizabethan age, Athelstan was a heroic figure in several stage plays. His claim to greatness is that he was the first king of all the English, as well as the first emperor of the British Isles, something not achieved since the Roman invasion of 43 CE. And finally, in 937, in one of the greatest and bloodiest battles in British history, he succeeded where Harold would eventually fail, in destroying the invader and preserving the English throne. It was not just by his military or diplomatic prowess that Athelstan became famous. He was also known for his piety and love of knowledge. Scholars flocked to his court, bringing with them books and religious artifacts. He was renowned across Europe, and not just as the grandson of Alfred the Great. Athelstan played a role in forging alliances with the former Carolingian Empire through marriage and fostering the offsprings of various continental royal families. At a time when the papacy and the royal courts of Europe were bemoaning the shortage of heroic kingly figures, it is perhaps no surprise to read so many continental scribes and poets describing Athelstan as the new Charlemagne and as the greatest king in the northern world. So how did Athelstan become the forgotten king? The simple fact is the time he lived is called the Dark Ages for a reason. He had no contemporary biographer like Alfred and there are very few existing documents that are still available. What we do know is mainly due to the 12th century monk William of Malmesbury, who had access to a long-lost document that detailed Athelstan's reign. So like a will-o'-the-wisp, the real Athelstan is very difficult to see, but there's more than enough to know that he is a king to be revered with Alfred, Edward III, and Henry V. Just to give a bit of context, in the 9th and 10th century, England and Britain as political entities simply didn't exist. There were several kingdoms ranging from Wessex in the south to Scotland in the north. These kingdoms were independent of each other and very jealous of their borders. Anglo-Saxon England was split between Mercia and Wessex with a distant outpost in Northumbria. Alfred's greatest achievement had been to unite Wessex and Mercia under his banner. Meanwhile, the Britons were to be found on the Celtic fringe in Wales, Scotland and Cornwall. These Celtic kingdoms would become a thorn in Athelstan's side and provide his greatest threats. The third ethnic group were the Vikings. Alfred had come close to losing his land and his life before he was able to defeat the Vikings at the Battle of Eddington. But he hadn't been able to remove them from England entirely. They still controlled from Lancashire to Essex, creating the basis of the north-south divide that exists to this day. Athelstan was born about 894. 
who is Mother Equin. His father was Edward the Elder, Alfred's oldest son and chosen heir. Edward routed a Viking force in Farnham in 893, somewhere in the vicinity of the Long Bridge. Athelstan was either illegitimate or his mother was a concubine rather than a legal wife. What is true is that Athelstan was not born when his father was king. And as such, he was not necessarily first in line for the succession. But at the very least, Athelstan grew up as a little eighthling, a prince of the royal court, and would have been treated as a possible future heir to the throne. Athelstan was a favourite of his grandfather, Alfred the Great, who earmarked him as a future ruler by investing him with royal regalia at the age of four. Alfred, though, died in 899, when Athelstan was just five, and Edward became king. And here, Athelstan's golden youth disappears in a puff of dynastic politics. His mother was sent to a nunnery, and his father remarried a more appropriate wife, while Athelstan was dispatched to live with his paternal aunt, Athelflaed, in Mercia, in Tamworth. It is, though, my belief that this fostering of the child was the making of the man. For his aunt, Athelflaed, is one of the greatest women in English history. The next nine or so years sees Athelstan living in Mercia and being groomed for greatness by his aunt. She took great care of his education. Athelstan was educated at Worcester Monastery and in so doing became the first Anglo-Saxon king that we know of as literate from childhood. It's impossible to know what lessons he learnt at her side as Athelflaed was a great stateswoman, a brilliant strategist and a very effective military commander. However, she died suddenly in 918 and Athelstan returned to his father's side. However, he was no longer the heir apparent, as that role had been usurped by Athelweird, Edward's new son. In 924, Edward died, and the eighthlings began to prowl. There was a real risk that Alfred's England would dissolve, as Mercia proclaimed for Athelstan, while Wessex proclaimed for Athelweird. Athelweird, though, died just 16 days later than his father. His death, though mysterious, is probably accident rather than murder. But in Anglo-Saxon England, who knows? Athelweard's death did mean a peaceful accession to power for Athelstan, but it still took him a further year to gain approval from the Royal Council in Wessex. Athelstan was finally crowned King of the Anglo-Saxons on September the 24th, 925. Symbolic of the power struggle with the Wessex nobles, he wasn't crowned in Winchester, the capital of Wessex, but at the old border post between Mercia and Wessex at Kingston-upon-Thames. At his coronation, Athelstan made a threefold promise. Firstly, he vowed to keep his people in peace. Secondly, he forbade robbery and wrongdoing by all men, regardless of their status. And finally, he promoted justice and mercy through the rule of law. Athelstan, more than any other Anglo-Saxon king, and maybe more than any other sovereign until the early modern age, lived up to these promises. With Wessex and Mercy secured, Athelstan could now look to his troublesome northern border. This took the part of marrying his sister to Citric, the Viking king of York, in 926. But Citric died suddenly the following year and was succeeded by his son Olaf. This was a major threat as it created a Viking power base backed by the Celtic kings on the northern frontier and caused instability in the East Midlands that was still populated by Vikings. Athelstan struck with lightning speed. Under the pretext that his widowed sister was isolated in York, surrounded by hostile forces, he marched swiftly north, earning the nickname the Thunderbolt. 
Though largely bloodless, the occupation of York was a straightforward military invasion, and Athelstan's daring move was enough to cow Northumbria and the Celtic kingdoms to submit. Ambassadors were sent out to all the northern British kings, explaining that if they did not accept his authority, they would be visited under the threat of war. The kings of Scotland, Cumbria, and Strathclyde were summoned to meet Athelstan at Aemont in Cumbria on July the 12th, 927, a date now synonymous with the foundation of England. They pledged peace, backed by oaths of fealty and acceptance of Athelstan's authority, and recognised England's borders. Next, it was the turn of the Welsh and the Cornish. Athelstan marched to Hereford and summoned the Welsh kings, who, like their Celtic counterparts, soon bent the knee. And so on to the Cornish, who also soon submitted. These campaigns to subdue the Celtic fringe were once thought to be over several years, but scholars now believe they took place in just nine months. The great court held at Exeter on Easter Sunday, 928, probably signifies the successful conclusion of Athelstan's conquering of Britain. Athelstan was no longer just king of the Anglo-Saxon, but king of all the English, guardian of Albion, and in contemporary records, even emperor of the world of Britain. And the northern kings despised him for it, but for six long years suffered their humiliation in sullen acquiescence. It was the Scots who first broke the peace treaty. When Constantine, king of Scotland, refused to honour his treaty commitments, Athelstan's reaction was swift and overwhelming. He rode forth from Winchester with a combined force of Anglo-Saxon, Welsh and East Midlands Scandinavian troops, the first imperial army of Britain. The speed and size of Athelstan's forces simply overwhelmed the Scots and Cumbrian kings. In the largest single campaign of the 10th century, Athelstan's land forces ravaged as far as the Pictish fortress of Dunatar, while his navy ruled the seas as far as Caithness. Constantine sued for peace. Athelstan accepted his surrender and then reinstated him as King of Scotland, an act of leniency that Athelstan would bitterly regret. Peace, though, was restored, and Athelstan was again emperor and great king. Hubris, though, is a terrible thing, and Athelstan finally overreached himself when, in 935, he called a great imperial assembly at Cirencester. Kings from across Britain were summoned to acknowledge his supremacy and to pay him his yearly tribute in person. Humiliation was heaped upon humiliation, as each of the five great Celtic kings had to bow and swear oaths to their father and lord, to be his workers on land and sea. It is not difficult to see how this caused Constantine to plot his next rebellion. In 937, Constantine finally bit back, and we now come to the defining moment of Athelstan's reign, a life and death struggle with the old enemy that sees Athelstan leading his army to the north to crush the combined Scots and Viking forces at Brunanburgh. It was a pivotal battle that shaped British history as much as the Battle of Hastings and Bosworth Field. If history is indeed written by the victors, then this particular history has been lost. There are very few contemporary records still existing. What we do know is that the campaigns of 927 and 934 had shown that simply waiting for the mass ranks of the English army to appear on your borders would only result in yet another defeat. In 937, therefore, Constantine invaded English territory. He brought his field army of his Grand Alliance south of the Humber, a force consisting of Celts, Norse, Danes, and even some discontented Anglo-Saxons. The initial plan was to create a base on English territory in the autumn of 937, 
from which to invade Anglo-Saxon England in the spring of 938. Athelstan, though, had other plans. He called forth the English army and hurried north with the intention of bringing a grand alliance to battle. Constantine had not expected Athelstan to move so late in the, in the campaigning season and was completely taken by surprise. The opposing forces met at a place called Brunenburg, a location long forgotten. All we know is it was a fort at Brunenburg and the joint Celtic and Scandinavian forces were dug in on a hill called Wienden. We know so little about the location of Brunenburg that there are over 40 claims for its location. It could either be in the Wirral, somewhere near Birmingham, or even in Devon. We simply don't know. But my best guess is it's somewhere in the Sheffield Rotherham Workshop area, a region that Athelstan knew very well, as it was an area that Athelflaed had fortified against the Vikings of York, and a lot of data backs that supposition. The battle was brutal, even by Anglo-Saxon standards, with Athelstan and his Edmund fighting side by side in the shield wall. The struggle was immense, horrible, and desperately fought. But eventually, the better trained and better armed English troops began to gain the advantage, and slowly, in ones and twos, and then in a flood, Constantine's great army fled the battlefield. Once the retreat had begun, Athelstan unleashed his cavalry in a bloody pursuit, chasing and harrying the fleeing masses back to their ships. The final death toll will never be known. The slaughter was prodigious, but the invading army had been utterly destroyed. So total was the victory that even 50 years later, Brunenburg was simply known as the Great Battle, and Athelstan would never be threatened again. So what makes Athelstan one of the greatest kings of England? It wasn't just about his military prowess. Every Anglo-Saxon king was supposed to be seated on a high watchtower, provident, wise, and militant, ready for war, ready to protect the weak. It was, after all, only their prestige and success as warriors that kept the Vikings at bay. But there is much more to Athelstan than just a 10th century hard man with a sword, and it is this that makes Athelstan a great king. As emperor of all Britain, Athelstan was faced with a problem none of his predecessors had ever had to face, namely to effectively govern a kingdom far larger than Wessex or Mercia. Athelstan developed concepts of good governments. He created a royal chancery and regularly summoned his royal council from across the whole of Britain in an attempt to spread decision-making beyond just the English court. These great councils were called not just to crack a few skulls of recalcitrant local magnates, but to genuinely hear the grievances of the common folk, to discuss policy and to make laws, and to prepare for the future he used these councils to educate his nominated heir, Edmund, on how to rule the kingdom when the sword was sheathed. Athelstan built a great reputation as an enlightened lawmaker. His law codes reflected the need to govern a wider realm rather than the tribal world of Alfred and Edward. His laws were in advance on the Old Testament punishments of his predecessors, and although harsh to 21st century eyes, they offer a degree of humanity rarely seen in the 10th century. In particular, he increased the age at which children could be put to death from 12 to 15 and introduced penalties like slavery and exile versus mutilation or death. Nearly 300 years later, Athelstan was described as the most law-abiding ruler the English had ever had. Athelstan and his advisers also saw that one country needed one coinage and the laws he introduced on this subject are amongst the first in English history to attempt to control the money supply. 
Athelstan introduced limits on the number of mints that were active in the kingdom, as well as controlling the weight and standard of silver to be used in coins. Furthermore, the coins had to bear the name of the mint which had struck them. This meant it was far easier to punish the fraudulent mint. By Athelstan's reign, it was time to review the role of the boroughs, the fortified towns introduced by Alfred. Some disappeared completely, while others were newly created. We begin to see familiar places appear on our maps, such as Guildford, Southampton, Barnstable and Totnes, which were all founded by Athelstan, while places like Exeter, Oxford and Hereford were refurbished. As well as founding new towns, the reigns of Edward and Athelstan also saw the reorganisation of the Midlands and East Anglia into the shires that formed the basis of local government in those areas until the reorganisation of 1974 swept away over a thousand years of history. Athelstan died on the 27th of October 939, aged about 45. On his death, a chronicler lamented the fall of the roof tree of the honour of the Western world. He's buried somewhere near Malmesbury Abbey, and his empty tomb can be seen in the nave. Why not at Winchester is a bit of a mystery. It wouldn't have been the first choice for a royal burial. Maybe the elder man of the West Saxons got their final revenge. Or maybe Athelstan himself chose it, the outsider to the last. What was never again in doubt was the concept of England and the possibility of an empire of the British under Anglo-Saxon rule. His England would last until 1013, when Ethelred the Unready, that woeful king, lost the kingdom to the old Nordic scourge, and Svein and Canute became the first Viking kings of England. Ultimately, an Anglo-Saxon king was only really measured by his prowess on the battlefield, and few can stand comparison with Athelstan. The successful warrior king who had united England, subdued the other rulers of Britain, and successfully defended that wider realm from outside attack. His reputation for being bold and audacious was only surpassed by his mastery of the tactics and strategy of war. He never married, either for religious, dynastic, or personal reasons but ensured the succession by nominating his half-brother Edmund, so his own succession crisis was not repeated on his death. Athelstan was more than just the first king of England. His reign planted the seed for united Great Britain. The last words I will leave to a contemporary Viking chronicler, who on Athelstan's death wrote, Athelstan was a very mighty king, one worthy of honour, in whose time the fields of England were consolidated into one. There was peace everywhere and an abundance of all things. Thank you. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group. Thank you for listening to this talk 